Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Hebrews chapter 10. That's on page 1007 if you're using the church Bible. Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to read from verse 32. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would illumine our minds and prepare our hearts to hear what you, God the Lord, have to say to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we come to the end of this uh, chapter, and, and it marks, as I said, a, tradi- a transition between the doctrinal material, the heavy teaching that he's been giving us earlier in the book, in which he's touched on all the main elements of the Christian faith, and is now applying it to us and to our everyday lives. The application begins in verse 19 of this chapter. The last words that we read of this chapter in verse 31 were terrifying. They were terrifying to some of us. They were certainly terrifying to the people to whom the author is writing as he gives us this graphic description of what it means for those who step out of the faith of Christ. He says this, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And what the writer has been doing, really, in his application so far is this. He has lovingly encouraged these people in verses 19 to 25 to understand what it is they have in the Lord Jesus, what what the gifts are that we have in the Lord Jesus. We have boldness of approach. We can come right into the very holy of holies, right, right into the very presence of God. We can boldly go where no one except the high priest was, was allowed to go in the tabernacle. And we boldly go not simply into the holy place of the tabernacle. We boldly go into the very presence of God by virtue of all that the Lord Jesus did in His act of obedience in His life and by His death for us on the cross. So that was a great encouragement for us to keep coming to Him, worshiping Him, going straight to God. Then he followed that with this stern warning that runs from verse 26 
a warning, really, of stepping out of the faith of Christ. There were those who were, who were uh, avoiding coming to church. They were avoiding meeting with God's people. And that was the first step the writer sees of, of a movement away from the things of God out of the faith of Christ. And he warns that that will end in eternal judgment, a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But now, he, he can, having given this stern warning, he now comes back to the people and gives them this loving, gentle reminder that things were different for them. He reminds them of their journey they've come so far. He reminds them of the former days. And that reference to the former days gives us pause to stop for a moment to try to locate these people in their particular space and time. The consensus, I think, is that every item fits Rome, uh, where there were a large number of Jewish people converted to Christianity. When we look at uh, Acts chapter 28, we read about Paul's first day of work there, when about 50% of all the leading rabbis and the chief men of the seven synagogues of Rome were converted to Christ, a great body of Jewish converts. And they never joined the existing congregation there in Rome. There had been a church there for about 20 years, the church that Paul is writing to when he writes his letter to the Romans. They had stayed together. They'd stayed together, some of them staying in the actual synagogue building and converting it, as it were, into a Christian church. They'd stayed together. And uh, those synagogues became places of Christian worship. Then in the year 64, Rome was burned. Paul was executed that year. On October the 24th of that year, the Christians were blamed for the fire. Many of them were imprisoned. Others were brought to a horrible death, thrown to the lions in the Colosseum, with tar poured over others, to act as flammable torches to illumine the amphitheater. It was a time of terrible death, horrible death, for many of the original congregation of Rome. And the Jewish congregations in their synagogues largely escaped that period, that onslaught. But they did not completely escape. Their sympathy for the imprisoned and the martyrs their showing of such empathy ensured that there was a measure of collateral persecution that came their way. That's the background to these words that the writer sends to them here. He's writing perhaps within a couple of years of those events. And so, these people to whom he's writing are living between the times. They're living between the days, the days of their enlightenment, the days when they first became believers, and the day, that is the day of the Lord's return, the day of Jesus coming back again. And living as they did between the times, some of them were abandoning the church. Some were repudiating the Christian faith. And those who were left were faced with a choice to shrink back back to their old Jewish ways, perhaps out of 
Christianity altogether, or to press on to the end. And so the author writes these words directly to them, and he urges them first to take stock, then to stand firm, and ultimately to press on. He urges them, first of all, to take stock. You can see that. Recall, he says, the former days. He's encouraging them to an act of recollection. He doesn't want simply for them to kind of recall facts from the past. He, He means to present before the mind and the imagination and the heart the experiences that had shaped and that continued to shape their identity as Christians. He asked them to bring before their imagination, in their minds, the former days, the earlier days, and to reflect on their experience then. How did they get to where they were? Here they were, he's writing to them as Jewish Christians, Hebrew believers. How did they get there? Well, he reminds them that in their former days they were enlightened. There's the first word that he uses after you were enlightened. This enlightenment was the first work of God's grace in their lives. This illumination, this moment, this aha moment of of the penny dropping, of truth breaking through their understanding. That moment in their experience, when to use the language of the Apostle Paul, they were translated from this darkness into the marvelous light that there is in Christ. That time when, as Paul writes to the Corinthians, God, who said, let there be light at the beginning of creation, and the light shone out of darkness, shone into their hearts the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In the hearts and minds of people who had no thought of Christ, no place for Christ, no love for Christ, no trust in Christ. God, by this divine act of speaking light into their hearts and minds, had confronted them uh, for the very first time with the knowledge of Christ. And they had come into the light. This is why the Lord Jesus came into the world. In Luke's gospel, we're told this. He came to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. It was the result of the, ta- it was the task of the evangelist by the Holy Spirit to open eyes that many may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to the power of God. So he's reminding them. You remember, he's saying to them, there was a time when you were brought out of the darkness of your Judaism into the light of the understanding of who Christ the Messiah is. Once you stood with your fellow countrymen in saying, he is not the Messiah. He is not the Christ. And then by the work of God, you came to affirm, Jesus is Lord. Like many of your pagan compatriots, who all their lifetime were able to swear with a pinch of incense on the altar that Caesar is Lord. And you broke with that, and you came to the place where you could stand with them and say publicly, Jesus is Lord. 
to the glory of God the Father. That was a work of God to get you there. That was an act from outside of you. It was an enlightenment. It came outside of your head, into your head, by the power of God as He removed your prejudices, as He renewed your understanding, as He refreshed your soul, as He brought you to Christ, and you received Him and trusted in Him. In the former days, you were enlightened. He reminds them, secondly, that in their former days, they were attacked. After you were enlightened, he says, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. The hard struggle here is a conflict. It's a battle, a battle with sufferings. As soon as God breathed life into them, as soon as God caused the divine light to illumine their minds, and they came to trust in the Savior, it seemed as if all the powers of Antichrist here below all the powers of hell combined their forces against this Christian man or woman, boy or girl, and attacked them with all the power that they had. A natural state is a state of darkness. In our natural state, God has blinded our eyes so that we do not see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In our natural state, we have no love for God, no interest in God. We do not come to God. We do not worship God. We don't embrace God and God's salvation. In our natural state, we are no threat to the devil and to the devil's machinations or to the organized kingdom of Antichrist that shapes and forms and fashions the world system in which we live. But once come to Christ, the very moment you are reconciled to God, you are alienated from the world, the flesh, and the devil. It is the reality of our experience. We cannot avoid it. And we must remember the words of the Apostle Paul. This conflict, this attack, this constant attack upon the church of God, this constant conflict with sin and evil in the world, is part and parcel of what it means to be reconciled to God. Those who would live godly in Christ Jesus must suffer persecution. What did this attack look like? Well, they were publicly exposed to reproach. The, the, the language used there refers to the theater where something is put on stage, publicly, before the eyes of a watching world. It refers to a form of public shaming. In other words, their suffering, their reproach, their shaming took place in the full glare of publicity. Their neighbors, their friends, their family, their colleagues all saw their faith held up to open ridicule and shame before the eyes of a watching world. This kind of public shaming you find elsewhere in the New Testament. It's often accompanied by reviling and reproach. You see it in the rejection of Jesus. Ultimately, when He is taken and naked, He is pinned to the cross, unable 
uh, to defend himself, to cover himself, there to an open shame before a watching world. And as they went by, they reviled him. They mocked him. They called him names. They despised him. Everything that God had done for the salvation of mankind was held up to an open shame by men and women in nailing Jesus to the cross. That kind of open shame afflicted the people of God in those early days of Christianity. Now, this kind of thing, of course, happens today in a measure, I suppose. Just this last week, I, was, uh, I read this on Facebook, which you visit two or three hundred times a day, I'm told. Uh, let me read it to you. Following the stellar performance of the Eagles, I think I, I wrote that bit, uh, in the Super Bowl, <clears throat> now I'm quoting, there was a, a wave of media outrage following an NBC commentator's opinion that Nick Foles' Christian faith had a significant influence over his performance and confidence as a player. That was all that the commentator said, really. And all hell broke loose in mockery. Apparently, saying that in public pushes the boundaries of what the thought police regard as free speech. They, of course, in their hypocrisy, can say anything they want about anyone they want, and especially about us, but we are not allowed to say anything positive about what we believe, and we're not allowed to commend others for what they believe. That's the kind of world we live in. The title of the piece was The Emerging Trend of Christian Shaming. Now, whether that's a trend that will increase or not, I don't know. And certainly what happened this week does not fall into the category of the most serious form of Christian shaming, the most serious form of which was the cross, and the more serious form of which happened to these believers that we are reading about here. But nonetheless, Christian shaming occurs in all kinds of contexts, in families, in schools, among your colleagues at work. It's why we're so reluctant sometimes to tell people what we do on Sunday mornings, because we don't want to be held up to ridicule and shame. It took that form. But it also took the form of affliction. Affliction has more of a physical dimension to it. It means to bring pressure on someone, to bear down on someone, to oppress them in some way. Maybe it's circumstances, hard circumstances that you've been through. Perhaps it's been a period of, of mental illness, or perhaps a period of depression, a period of, of physical ailments or suffering, a particularly hard period with your children or with your parents or with the, uh, the school that you're at or, or whatever it may be, pressure being brought to bear upon you that makes life for you as a Christian hard to bear. It may be worse than that, of course. It may be the authorities bearing down on Christian people, closing their stores, forbidding them to, to trade with anyone else, it could be even worse than that. It could be physically arresting them, imprisoning them, torturing them, 
Affliction, this word that's used here, refers to any form of personal physical abuse up to and including torture. These people had been exposed to this kind of thing. And the the writer says about these people, you endured, you endured this conflict with sufferings. You endured right through it. You didn't give up. You didn't desert the faith. You didn't try and dodge the implications. In fact, far from doing that, he says, even when you weren't being attacked directly yourself, you partnered with those who were being attacked. You see how he puts it, sometimes being partners with those so treated. Because Christian people, genuine Christian people, have a fellow feeling for their brothers and sisters in Christ, especially those who are suffering for their faith. And these believers did. Do you see how he explains what, what they did? For example, they had compassion on those in prison. Jesus prepared them for this. Jesus said, for example, on one occasion in Matthew 25, I was in prison and you came to visit me. He didn't mean that he personally was in prison. He meant his people were in prison, and when you visit his people, you visit Jesus. In those days, of course, prisoners did not get three square meals a day, did not, were not given prison uniforms to wear, did not have warm bedrooms in which to sleep. Prisoners in those days were entirely dependent on friends and family coming to visit them in prison every day to bring them food to eat, clothes to wear, blankets to keep them warm. You visited them when they were in prison. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. What an amazing phenomenon this is. Joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Their things, quote-unquote, had been torn away from them, whether in rage or spite or jealousy or greed or malice. Who knows the motive? But they'd been taken away from them. Their stuff had gone. And what was their state of mind? They took their losses and their crosses with joy. They did not murmur or complain or mourn their misfortune. They didn't tweet out the bad news or post it on Facebook. They took took it all. And they rejoiced that they had the privilege of suffering for Jesus' sake. Now, the author is writing to these people. He says, take stock. This is your record. This is what you have done in those days, just perhaps a couple of years back, when we were going through that bad time. You remember how you responded. You responded like Christians. Take stock. Secondly, he says to them, stand firm. Because we ask the question, what was their secret? How were they able to do this? It wasn't that these people were Stoics. You know, often we look at people, and there are people we know in our lives, and they seem to be go through a lot of stuff, and we think, they must be so strong. They must be like rocks. They don't feel the pressure. 
Oh, you'd be surprised. Everybody feels the pressure. These people were not Stoics. They weren't even being swept along by a tide of overwhelming excitement and enthusiasm. No, their buoyant spirit arose from a persuasion of their mind and heart. You knew, the author says, that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. What were these things that were torn from them? These were what Jesus calls treasures on earth. They're good things. They're valuable things. They're things to be sought and wanted and enjoyed. They are treasures after all. They're treasures on earth. But the greatest treasures of earth are in the end just stuff. Because the treasures of earth are where moth and rust corrupt and thieves break through and steal, Jesus said. Those things that we have, that we possess, do bring us a measure of joy and satisfaction, but they are fundamentally, ultimately, insubstantial. There's nothing solid there in the end. But these believers, do you notice, these believers knew that they had a better possession. They knew it for themselves. You notice how he underlines that. Knowing in yourselves. You have this conviction in yourself, placed there by God, reinforced by God's Word, nurtured by God's Spirit in your heart. Knowing in yourselves. What did they know? They knew that they had something substantial that was eternal in heaven. They reckoned that the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. They argued that our light momentary troubles are working for us a far more and receding, exceeding weight of glory that God is prepared for those who love Him. They argued that there was blessing in heaven for those who suffered for Jesus' sake. And the apostle is saying, stand firm in that knowledge. Stand firm in that conviction. Not only that, he says to them, stand firm in your confidence. Don't throw away your confidence, which has great reward. That is their confidence in the Lord Jesus. That by being united to the Lord Jesus, His strength is yours. His righteousness is yours. His love is yours. His heart is yours. And you will never, ever be separated from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Take stock. Stand firm. And thirdly, press on. Remember what he said to them in verse 32? Recall the former days when you endured. That period of testing, you endured 
It may have been persecution you endured. It may have been a period of illness you endured. It may have been a time of trouble in your life, testing in your church. It may have been a time of alienation from others. It may have been isolation. Whatever it was you were going through, you endured that in the past, didn't you? You hung in there. The author is saying to us, brothers, sisters in Christ, remember those tough times in your past. And what did you do? You endured. So what do you have to do now? Here's what he says. You have need of endurance. You got through then, but it's not, end, it's not the end yet. We're not home yet. We're still on the journey to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the new Jerusalem, to Zion, the city of God. And on the journey, we have to keep going. Keep keeping on. That's why earlier on in this chapter, he's told us that when we get together, whether it's one-on-one or one in a group or all together as a church, we're going to be encouraging each other to keep keeping on. Not to drop out, not to drift away, but to keep keeping on. You have need of endurance. You see, right at the very beginning of this book in chapter 2, verse 1, He has no sooner introduced us to the eternal Son of God in whom our salvation lies than He addresses these people and He says, you know, you're in danger of drifting, drifting. I think I was one of these blow-up things that you lie on when you're on the sea. It was the Adriatic Sea off the coast of Venice, and I was lying on this thing, and I think I went to sleep, and those ashore saw it move further and further and further and further out to sea. It was by Liam, gone for good. Uh, the joy was uproarious. That's what woke me up. And uh, it took me a long time to get that thing back to shore again. Nobody came to help. Nobody moved a muscle. These people, the, the author says, right at the beginning of the book, were in danger of drifting away. He's already mentioned something like this. Some were in the habit now of not going to church. Some were in the habit now of not assembling with God's people. Drifting, drifting. And here at the second part of the book, he's warned them that drifting can lead to repudiating Christ altogether. So he's given them this great warning, and so he writes to them again. He says, you need to endure. You need endurance. Grace may have begun a good work in you, but it's not perfected yet. Grace has worked into us by degrees. So we need to endure. Endure in what? The will of God, he says. May the will of God be the guide and rule of your life. May the will of God be the means by which you know which way to go. Not a little voice in your head saying, do this. If you get voices in your head, please make an appointment to see Carol Wynn and he'll deal with that. No, it it is the will of God that's revealed in Scripture, which is the guide of our Christian lives. God speaks to His church by the Holy Scripture. Enduring in the will of God is doing what the Bible says. Persevering in Christ, growing in Christ. And we're to do this, he says, because 
yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not delay. In what sense would the Lord Jesus come? Well, he might come by his Holy Spirit to strengthen you. He says this in John's Gospel. He says, I will come to you. I'll send my Holy Spirit to you. When the Holy Spirit comes to you, I'll come to you, and the Father will come as well. We will come to you. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, we will come to be with you, to be by your side, to be within you. When the Holy Spirit of God is indwelling you as a believer, the Father and the Son and the Spirit are there by the Holy Spirit indwelling the believer. He comes to us in that way. He comes to us at death. He comes to us at death to bring us to Himself and to share the Father's house with us. But here the, here the focus is on the final coming, the public, personal coming of the Savior that we call the second coming. There's an illusion, uh, an allusion here in, in these verses, in these words of verse 37. From Isaiah 26, verse 20, the words, yet a little while. Context of Isaiah? The latter days, the end of history as we know it. The second quotation is from Habakkuk chapter 2, where, which Paul quotes many times, talking about the righteousness that comes to the believer through faith. Prophets on the watchtower He's been given a promise that judgment will come. Hebrews here makes this personal and specific. Judgment will come by that man whom God has ordained, Jesus Christ the righteous. He that shall come. Jesus is he who shall come. For as the lightning comes out of the east and shines to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. And in the meantime, knowing that Jesus will come again, how are we to live? How are we then to live today? Well, he tells us we are to live by faith. We are to live by faith. If a person shrinks back, my soul, God says, will have no pleasure in them. God doesn't have a soul. He's using language we understand. He's saying, I, I myself will have no pleasure in them. The one who has been accounted righteous with God by faith is also the one who is to live by faith. And he's going to illustrate that in chapter 11. But that's where we are today. We are to live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. And as the the author writes to these particular people, here's what he says to them. Isn't this comforting? We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. But we are of those who have faith and save our souls. That's an amazing thing. Before I came here, I was minister of Duke Street Church in Richmond, and the church had been founded, planted by C.H. Spurgeon, great preacher, And the first pastor that was appointed by Spurgeon to go there and get the work off the ground was a man 
known as F.B. Meyer, whose books are still published today. It's in the latter part of the 19th century. F.B. Meyer, I just picked this up this morning. I hadn't looked at it. It's a little commentary on Hebrews. Comments that it's true that we're saved when we first turn to the cross and trust in the crucified. But it's only as we keep in the current that streams from the cross, only as we remain in abiding fellowship with the Savior, only as we submit habitually to the gracious influences of the Holy Spirit, that salvation pervades and heals our whole being. This is when the soul is said to be preserved, preserved for endless blessedness, preserved for endless blessedness. That's the ultimate. That's where we're going, that eternal blessedness in the presence of God. We have need for endurance because it's by endurance that we demonstrate that we are among those who will one day see Jesus face to face. Let's pray. Father, we pray that by Your grace we would take stock looking at the ways in which in Your great providence and wonder You've been at work in our lives. That we'd stand firm, Lord, in those things that we've become convinced of and in which our confidence has been trusting in Christ alone for our salvation. And that we would press on towards the goal, which is the high calling of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We pray this for your glory's sake. Amen.